1: It's Green and Growing with Ashley Frasca. Plants, flowers, trees, and stuff. Brought to you by Pike Nurseries. On 95.5 WSB.
0: Good morning. It's Green and Growing. I'm really proud of the show I've put together for you today. Some of the guest expert interviews I'm going to bring you are fantastic. Up first is Tom Cox, who is the owner of Cox Arboretum in Cherokee County, and author of Landscaping with Conifers and Ginkgo for the Southeast. I was introduced to Tom by someone in the Ball Ground Garden Club, and we got to talking, and immediately his passion and knowledge for trees was so clear. He's traveled the world, actually has trees from all over the world, in his 13-acre landscape in Canton. So we started off talking about his knowledge of history, the oldest tree there is, and maybe the toughest one you can find. So
1: ginkgo would have come along about 180 to 200 million years ago. It is treated as the world's oldest tree. At one time, ginkgo appeared in North America and other parts of the world. And due to the glaciers on the earth, ginkgos became extinct and they were rediscovered in china Uh, whether or not they're extinct in china we're not really sure but the buddhist monks treated them as sacred trees and would plant them around temples and buddhist uh, monasteries and what have you so they revered the tree it's a very tough tree largely unchanged again from when it was first appeared on earth we know this from fossil remains looking at them in north america as well as in china and other parts of the world even australia One tree, which I'm going to show you soon, survived Chernobyl. It was actually three trees survived Hiroshima and came back from the roots. So very, very tough tree, tenacious tree. Uh, They're known for several things. One is their fall color. That is probably one of the top five trees that you could ever find for fall color.
0: And when you said that ginkgos were recognized way back in history because of fossils, that was seen in the leaf, that very unique fan shaped leaf being fossilized, right?
1: Exactly. You could find that exact leaf and you could find ginkgos that had become extinct. Again, here in North America, we got some of those out in the, like Montana.
0: And ginkgos are familiar to me because I was a student at the University of Georgia and they're planted uh, along Broad Street in downtown Athens, but I also recognized the ginkgo leaf as your symbol for the Cox Arboretum. How did you choose that?
1: I just, again, I find the leaf fascinating. I like the tree. As we'll walk around here and see, you're going to see probably 50 different ginkgo here. I stress the word different, very distinct. You'll be able to tell them apart, and each, each of them has a name like majestic butterfly, which is a little dwarf variegated form. I am uh, fascinated by the history of this tree, by its longevity, at it being a survivor. Something that would survive Chernobyl or Hiroshima got to be pretty doggone tough tree.
0: Tom, one of my questions for you was, how do you secure these trees from all over the world? Here, I was thinking a small tree was shipped to you, and oftentimes it is from a seed or from a cutting that is propagated, and you rely on someone in uh, Tennessee to you know, oftentimes start those cuttings for you and be able to propagate them. And once you get them to your house and they're here in one gallon pots, if someone were to procure something that size, a small, small tree, talk me through how you keep that alive from that point. We
1: have a lot of plants here that there's nowhere else in the world. Uh, There's plants here that are nowhere else in North America because of our connections people can say the same thing of our collection that we send overseas. It starts out with Facebook and Messenger and all that. There's a whole wide world group of people, what I call plant enthusiasts and sometimes conifer enthusiasts, and they're always anxious to share things with you and hope sometimes they get something back from you. So a lot of plants go around the world from uh, people taking cuttings. It's Not atypical at all in the winter that I would come out here with my wife and take 50, 60, 100 cuttings of different things, package them up, mail them to uh, Czech Republic or Germany or Japan, and uh, send these around, and in return, we're getting plants we don't have. These come in, and uh, mostly they're cuttings, depending on what it is. Some of them are grafted, some of them are rooted. The pines would all be grafted. The spruce and fir would all be grafted plants. Some of our Japanese cedars, etc., would be rooted. As an example, we get plants in from Oregon that we send to them. They may grow it for two or three years for us. Then when it's ready, they'll send it to us. We'll keep it in a pot maybe for a year, let it get acclimated here, and then put it in the ground. We don't put plants out and stress them right away. And you got to keep them watered. you got to keep them fertilized and some cases pruned or staked. There's a there's a lot to this. When you when you're seeing a plant, in Pikes Nursery or somewhere, you know, have no idea what went on making that plant be what it is.
0: If someone had a tree that they wanted to start like this, how long would you say before you are letting it get root bound and you really need to get it in the ground? How quickly?
1: Whether it's a conifer or whether it's a angiosperm and maple or whatever, you want to put them in the ground before hot weather, that doesn't mean that we don't get things in pots and put them in the ground the next day. But they're plants that are generally been grown in a nursery and are okay, but these things that were grown from cuttings or grafted, we'll put these in the ground in the fall when it's cooler. I want to stress also the need to mulch, whether it's a plant that you bought in a nursery or whether something someone gave you, keep that plant mulched, avoiding soil splash on the foliage, keeping the ground cooler as well as keeping the moisture in what you do want to avoid is putting the mulch right up against the trunk so you want to avoid these mulch volcanoes but uh, it will help a lot we use a lot of mulch from um, tree crews we normally let that cure outside for about three months before we put it out because otherwise it really deprives the soil of oxygen
0: other than that
1: actually it's not any more difficult than that the big thing you got to figure now is ultimately do they go in sun shade in between is it afternoon sun they don't want is it full sun they want do they want it moist do they want it dry do they want to be mounded up another consideration is how big is it going to get these all have to be good neighbors you've looked around here and you see all these plants growing together from literally all over the world They've they've got to coexist. We run here what I call a plant motel, where plants check in and plants check out. So we literally keep the good plants and those that are not good neighbors or misbehave, they are kicked out.
0: And you mentioned discovering these things about these trees: what they like, what their sun preferences, what their soil preferences. Given that a lot of the things you have on these 13 acres aren't native to the United States. Do you know that as you get the plant or it's trial and error and you're discovering what it likes?
1: We could virtually take almost any plant that's here and you could take a picture of the sign and you could Google the plant and it would give you more information and you could probably retain. I don't know, I shouldn't say that. You strike me as a very smart person, that's- obviously. <laughs> but the Internet today is filled with, with just a ubiquitous amount of information. So we do a lot of research. One of the things we look at is latitudinal adaptation. Because of where we sit, we're about 34 degrees latitude.
0: That lines
1: up pretty well with a lot of China and, and Taiwan. Taiwanese plants do very well here. We're finding a lot of plants from northern Vietnam, as well as high elevations northern Mexico, adapt very well here. All of that is pretty much researched before that plant is ever planted. I've got to figure out how big is it going to get. And another challenge here is you look around, this place is full of plants. There's over 4,000 different plants in here. Finding spots for these now has become challenging. So we've got to kind of be judicious and circumspect about where we put things.
0: There seems to be, in the botanical world, a little bit of a negative connotation sometimes with something that is a Chinese variety or Japanese variety, only because it could be an, in invasive. And like one example that I can think of is wisteria, right? Like Chinese wisteria seems to be super invasive, overruns, but then if you get the American variety, sometimes that's a little more, you know, good for pergolas and things. Why, why would the Asian varieties be a little more invasive?
1: You know, there's going to be invasive plants out there no matter where you plants derived from kudzu is another one of those obviously a real nemesis for us as is the scourge to me of all which is chinese privet i pay people to pull privet up when they're here i say that facetiously but if you want a second job i'm on it come pay come come pull privet what i have always found interesting about southern and south central asia particularly china their flora and the floristic similarity between here Virtually every plant, actually, in this area you're looking at the oaks, the hickories, the poplar, the sweet gum, sassafras there is an Asian counterpart, which means at one time there was a landmass. These plants come from a common ancestry. When the continents drifted apart, there went the plants, and the plants morphed into wherever they are. I'll never forget going to the Grand Canyon, looking at the North and South Rim, and studying the uh, fauna there, and looking at rabbits and squirrels. And on one rim, they'd be furrier, or their tail would be bushier, or their feet would be larger, because they had to adapt to the environment they were cast into. It's no different with these plants. When the, when the continents drifted apart, these plants had to adapt to varying conditions. So I would say overall, many of the Asian plants do better here, actually. When you say invasive, yeah, those do too well. We don't grow them here. We don't promulgate plants that would be invasive at all. But let's take for a moment Asian dogwood. Our native dogwood is, has anthracnose, which is a fungal issue. A lot of them are weak. They don't bloom as well. You put a cornus cusa in here, and they just do great. They adapt so well here. So I would say overall it's a probably growing-wise a superior plant. A lot of the reasons are like the hemlock. Our hemlock is getting a uh, insect called woolly adeligid, and it's ravishing hemlock up in the Carolinas, northern Georgia. Yet you can bring in an Asian hemlock, and they're totally impervious to it because they developed a resistance who knows how many hundreds of years ago.
0: I've seen aerial photos from North Carolina of the damage that that does to the hemlocks. I mean, it's they can't get ahead of it. It's acres and acres and acres worth of damage.
1: Same with red spruce up in the Appalachian. You, you go over into the Smokies. I have seen areas where we've been into whole mountains of red spruce, Pacea rubens, gone, just gone. And that's primarily acid rain and rainfall regimes changing. Um, now, we get this thing sometime, and I'm kind of agnostic to this, but it's got to be a native plant. And I rhetorically ask, well, native to win, Because at one time, like I said, there were a lot of like native here that aren't native here now. So I don't have anything against native plants. Again, you've seen a lot of native plants like the uh, yellowwood over here. But there's room for both run for both that's right yeah but again that's this concept of being a four season gardener and gosh there's no reason today with the internet why you can't see a plant and go out and look that plant up and generally go find it somewhere and if you can't come somewhere like this and get a cutting
0: coming up next advice from tom what to do when you have insect infestations in some of your trees on green and growing it's wsb and I'm back with Tom Cox, owner of Cox Arboretum. Maybe you don't have hemlocks. Maybe you don't have to worry about that woolly adelgid. But Tom warns of two insects that may be a little more common.
1: Pine-tip sawflies, they're absolutely murder on two- and three-needled pines. So if you're not looking in the fall, in mean the fall, I mean about August, on in through uh, winter, for these little critters that get on there, they're larvae, will just chew the tips of the uh, needles off, thereby killing the plant eventually. We don't use chemicals here typically. I'm kind of purist about that, but with these little critters, we use seven dust on there. I say that with gritted teeth because I don't like using chemicals because of the butterflies and other beneficial insects. But that's one situation, you know, you got to make some decisions out there where you're gardening.
0: I'm glad you brought that up because I was asking you earlier doing this walkthrough. How do I know when my conifer, my evergreen tree is toast? I mean, some needle drop is normal. Some browning of the needles is normal. But at what point do I cut my losses?
1: you may not as a homeowner recognize that obviously when the plant is starting to dial over the plant it's not just the tips you can reasonably assume that that uh, plant has gone south many of your non-conifers you can cut that plant back there's a word called coppicing which is taking the plant back almost to the ground level and they'll come back you can even do that sometime if your plant has ambrosia beetles you can cut below where the infestation was and that plant will regenerate from down in the roots Conifers are very non-forgiving when it comes to going south. When they do, they they it's over. You're not going to rejuvenate those.
0: And now when you say that for, you know, ambrosia beetles, for example, and you say go below where the damage has occurred to make the cut, you're talking trunk and all.
1: Oh, yeah, the trunk is the main thing. They will only generally come to trees that are stressed. It's like that plant is sending out a pheromone that those uh, ambrosia beetles will lock in on just like radar. You can tell those by that little white frass, little toothpicks that uh, come out. You cut below that, burn that branch or burn that whole tree, and then hope your fingers cross that it comes back.
0: And oftentimes, questions that I get from many of you. When we come back after the news, Tom's recommendations to help you along in the establishment and the maintenance of your landscape. You're listening to 95.5 WSB. Oh yeah, the
1: grass is green. Uh-huh. I'm gonna live where the green grass grows.
0: The grass is always green around the other side.
1: growing with Ashley Frasca plants flowers trees and stuff brought to you by Pike nurseries
0: on 95.5 WSB good morning glad you're sticking around to hear more from my interview with Tom Cox who's an author and owner of Cox Arboretum in Canton Georgia talking about being a four seasons gardener even though I saw his property earlier this summer how to keep color in your landscape all season. Plus, he's going to give you some pruning tips for those evergreen and conifer trees in your yard.
1: One of the things I frequently observe in the South is we tend to garden here for the spring. My wife is a distant cousin of a singer that some of you may remember named Peggy Lee, and she had a song called, Is This All There Is? And I kind of liken that to gardening in the South. We have this big flush of dogwood and camellia and azalea and rhododendron, et cetera. And then here comes the summer doldrums. And then the winter is largely lifeless here in the south. I used to drive through Buckhead a lot to some of the more expensive areas. You know, you'd see, always see green. You'd see these nice hollies and nice lawns and magnolias. And I always thought about, I wanted green in the winter. So I would say to you that learn to be a four-season gardener. There's plants that bloom here literally 12 months out of the year. If something is not in a lot of bloom, we color a lot with foliage. I'd say that if you've noticed here, Ashley, we don't have a lot of things in bloom. It's more foliage, but it weaves a real tapestry. And I'm not saying we are great at it, but we certainly have a good mixture here. As someone said the other day, they didn't realize there were so many shades of green but particularly with the use of conifers, you're able to incorporate colors into the landscape that are there with you during January and February when you can't wait for spring to arrive. It's in, enlivening to come out and see these plants that are, some of them will change colors during the winter and they'll turn yellow during the winter. They'll produce beautiful fruits and make great nesting sites for birds and other animals. So we have a lot of birds here in the winter because there's areas we can just get in and from protection. So there's so many reasons why I think incorporating conifers into your garden gives you this four-season interest. And again, not focusing so much on bloom. It's not, that's all there is. There's more.
0: This may be asking you for a favorite child, which is tough but one plant, one tree for each season that's your favorite. All four seasons, what you got?
1: In the fall, definitely ginkgo because of the reliable, 100% guaranteed yellow color that you're going to get. I'm going to plug a second plant for the fall, which is Chinese pistachio, which if you want another interesting, beautiful orange-red color for the fall, on a good, strong tree here is Chinese pistachio, non-nut-bearing. It's ornamental only. For spring, probably um, Halesia, which is Chinese silver bell, or American silver bell, I should say. Stewardia. saying if you're not growing Stewardia, you're missing a real connoisseur tree.
0: I'm mistaken to that for a camellia, and I thought, we're out here in the beginning of June. There's no way that's a camellia, and that's what it was.
1: Yeah, the bark, the form... The blooms—it's a transition plant. Your azaleas are finished. Your, finish, your rhododendrons are finished. Gardenias are about over. Now you've got this wonderful tree with these white camellia-like blooms. I could see why actually you would mistake that. So great tree, I guess, for winter. And my favorite tree, maybe in the arboretum, is a tree from Taiwan named Taiwania or Taiwan coffee coffin tree. They use it to make coffins. I'll make sure you see that before you leave. But what a graceful tree! Hours of was wild collected on a mountain in Taiwan. Just a graceful, wonderful tree.
0: And some of the questions I received from you all, I'm asking Tom Cox here, owner of Cox Arboretum, how to tell the health of your pine trees and also recommendations, which I know you all love plants for privacy and screening. But first, how do you properly prune a conifer?
1: Two ways you prune a pine is in the spring you'll see these growths elongate from the tips and they're called candles. We go in and we break those about in half and that sort of keeps the pine not getting so large. It helps it to branch out and not be so naked between the branches.
0: How long can a candle get?
1: Well a candle can get eight inches long. Another thing people typically become so alarmed about is in the fall they will start to see brown needles on their pines and you'll see them in the spring sometime. Some of that is normal. It's just shedding of the needles, nothing to be alarmed about. If you're starting to see the tree wilt and the needles hanging down and showing no vigor at all, sometimes you can get by with pruning. Uh, You've got to make sure when you prune any conifer that you're pruning where there is live foliage. If you prune where there's a naked branch, you will have a stub forever and ever. Amen. So you've got to make sure you go in there. Find where you've got active needles growing out the sides of the stem. Prune in there. If you'll notice, when you get a Christmas tree, they've all been pruned. There's nothing real scientific about it. You can do it with uh, hand clippers. You can do it with pruners. They're pretty forgiving as long as you make sure you do not prune into where there is no growth at all.
0: And I think that's one of the common mistakes folks make. You know, Leland cypresses were overused, overplanted, and a lot of folks start to worry about, you know, limbs dying out on those. But if you cut back halfway into the tree, that branch, like you're saying, there is no growth there. That's just going to remain an
1: empty branch. A stub, yeah.
0: Talking about Leland cypress, folks kind of beat their heads against a wall when they want something that's fast-growing, that's evergreen, privacy shrub. That's a question I get a lot, and I don't want to recommend Leland cypress. What are maybe two or three of your recommendations that would be landscape staples, but not overused like Leland's?
1: I don't think Leland in and of itself is a bad species. They are used incorrectly in the landscape. People bunch them together. Hot, dry, unforgiving, baking sun. But they get quite large. As a matter of fact, in England, there's actually been successful lawsuits where people have sued their neighbor because the tree has gotten so large, it shaded out the neighbor's, maybe backyard, maybe the swimming pool, maybe their barbecue area. When the person bought the house next door to the Leyland, this Leyland was quite small, and one day it grows up, and it's a 60-foot tree. So Leyland should not, absolutely not be used as a screening tree. And in general, I think there's better trees, period. So the first one would be Western Arbovita. It's actually a hybrid between our Thuja placata Western redwood, which is actually an Arbavita, not a redwood, and the Japanese form of that. They created a hybrid called Green Giant. It was actually created in Denmark, of all places, introduced here by the National Arboretum. Absolutely, maybe the best screening plant today is Thuja Green Giant, T-H-U-J-A. The next one is Cryptomeria, and if there is a conifer genus that is at home in the southeastern United States, it's Cryptomeria. I've never found one that I didn't like or didn't grow well here. So there's a particularly large one called Yoshino. You'll see some other ones like Radicans and Ben Franklin. They're okay, do fine. I I think Yoshino, maybe to me, is the best form. Pretty good growers. One last one... um, that doesn't particularly age well, they've got a good lifespan of about 10 to 12 years, is uh, Arizona cypress, Cupressus glabra, Cupressus arizonica. There's a number of blue forms out there of those. make really nice, good screening plants. I just don't have the shelf life of, say, a green giant or a cryptomeria non-conifers. There's obviously things like uh, Nellie R. Steven's hollies. Buffer dye holly gets a pretty good size. Come out of Oakdale Cemetery in uh, Atlanta. I think that gives you some choices. I need to be mindful. They'd be, these need to be plants that are available. And all of these plants I mentioned are available to you in the, in the different uh, nurseries around Atlanta.
0: Good time to plant. The weather is cooling off. The soil temperatures are cooler in the fall. That gives the tree cooler seasons to be able to establish roots and all of that. But it seems to me that when you plant evergreens, it is constant watering is very essential in the establishment of the tree. Would you say so?
1: Establishment, yes. After they're established, they're they're pretty doggone forgiving trees. You look around here. We don't water these big trees very much at all. Yeah, I would say the first year or two, especially the first year, is critical. In the establishment of those roots, we tend to uh, not amend our soil here in everything we plant today, we incorporate powdered lime. We go to home depot, and I find as good a lime as you can buy it's called deco d e c c o It's a powdered form, it's quicker released than the pelletized and we usually incorporate that into the planting hole. I think a lot of our plants here are acid tolerant and not acid loving they they do benefit i think from a little a little lime. You may be in an area that's not as acidic as here, but we don't amend the soil. We do mulch. Mulch is, I think, the most critical thing I would say to your listeners is, is that when you get that ground, get some mulch out there. It avoids the leaf of the splash of the water up onto the leaf from the dirt. It keeps the roots cooler. It retards the weeds. It's also aesthetically pleasing. I would just make sure you avoid putting the mulch right up against the trunk avoid these mulch volcanoes, as I call them, and keep the uh, mulch, I would say, maybe a half an inch away from the trunk of the tree.
0: And I'm glad you covered soil. That was one of my questions for you. Not much amendments except powdered lime. Now, do you know that based on any soil tests, or that's just to kind of offset a little bit of the acidity in the Georgia red clay?
1: Our soil test here, and we've had them done to the U- U- University of Georgia. We're, we're, we're pretty deficient here in magnesium, so um, we try to we use some slow-release fertilizers. That's the other thing I'm glad you circled back because I don't. I didn't talk about fertilizers. We don't fertilize any of our large plants. They don't need it anymore, but things just growing in. If you've got plants that you want to see larger while you're in the home or in your lifespan, we use two types of fertilizer now. The first we learned, really, from working with the Atlanta Botanical Garden, that's hollytone. Hollytone is a very good fertilizer. It's not particularly high in nitrogen, Low plant uh, nitrogen must, but boy does it work with plants uh, in terms of stem growth. Uh, it's a slower release. It's not pure slow release, but I'd say Hollytone. If you got perennials, you want to juice up. You got young plants, put some Hollytone in there in the spring. And the second one that we use, we use a slow release fertilizer. One that. May not be so easy to get. We don't particularly care for uh, some of the slow release ones, but uh, one called Harrels, H A R R E L L S, is a good formulated slow release that is slow enough it doesn't burn the plants. But Harrels and Hollytone, we go around once a year to all of our plants that are small, I'd say small being five foot and under, and they get a good top dressing in the spring of Hollytone followed by uh, slow release.
0: Now, one more question, too, about the establishment. You said water is really key in that first year. Um, soaker hose, is that the way to do it? Yeah,
1: if you have the ideal situation where you've got, you can do that. Yeah, in your yard. Yeah, it's wonderful. There. I was down uh, Sunday, actually, uh, with a gentleman, a doctor in Macon, Georgia. And he was growing hemlocks and some other th- plants that weren't supposed to be there that far south. And he had these high risers, on copper risers, probably 15 feet tall. And he had a timer and he had a mist system. And these mists were coming on. It was replicating the fog belt out along the southern Pacific coast of California where that fog rolls in and keeps those plants misted. That's what he was doing. And i got to tell you, he was growing plants that if somebody asked me, and I'm pretty good at this stuff, asked me, can you grow those in Macon? I'd say no, emphatically not. And boy, did he prove me wrong.
0: You're not going to find too many who are more passionate about trees and more specifically conifers than Tom Cox and his Arboretum produces research examining the adaptation of conifers in the southeast. He's also the past president of the American Conifer Society. A stroll through his gardens was amazing. I was able to see the largest collection of species of conifers. Right here, northwest of Atlanta And he, along with John Ruder Who is the Alan Armitage Professor of Horticulture now At the University of Georgia Wrote the book Landscaping with Conifers and Ginkgo For the Southeast It's really a pleasure to spend the afternoon with Tom When we come back The top three things to do in the landscape this weekend And next hour, Dr. Alan Armitage, Yeah, you just heard his name An afternoon with him in the classic city of Athens All that coming up on 95.5 WSB
1: With Ashley Frasca Here's your garden to-do list this week
0: Listen to all those happy people I certainly hope you are happy this morning Glad you're here and listening to Green and Growing So this is one of the things you love The simple three things to do in the landscape This weekend or this coming week Well number one, diagnose plant problems Don't automatically reach for a fungicide If you suspect a disease on your plants Though it's good to have those on hand Identify the problem correctly So my advice, take a piece of the plant To an expert at a pike nursery location For help in properly diagnosing what's going on Or call 1-800-ASK-UGA1 To talk to your local extension office Number two, continue weeding Flower beds and gardens I know it's a pain, I'm one of the weird ones I enjoy vacuuming and I enjoy weeding It just gives me some satisfaction because I can see My work but if you're not the type to hand Weed I understand lay a layer Of cardboard or newspaper down Covered by mulch to cheaply and Easily suppress weeds when you can't Use herbicides maybe around the vegetable garden Our friend Mickey Gazaway says about three Layers of newspapers enough to do the trick And number three keep those hummingbird Feeders clean and full of sugar water You don't need the red food coloring and Also please fill and clean your bird feeders To attract bright bluebirds, birds gold Finches and Cardinals. Many may be Taking care of their young right now. Coming up In hour number three, Dr. Alan Armitage and Pike Nursery On 95.5 WSB Join us Today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right Now get 20% below MSRP For an average of 15178 Under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE or Summit 4xE